Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. We have a special guest this week who is not well known to you yet. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to this podcast and go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information or to contact me. I am excited to talk with our guest today. His name is Noah McGill. He is a rising senior at Circle Christian School in Central Florida. He plans to attend the University of Central Florida to pursue a degree in cybersecurity. That sounds like a smart plan to me. He enjoys all things government, and he enjoys the nuance of legislation. He's a student who is likely to engage, in my opinion, in government in meaningful ways. I think you should remember his name. He's a nuanced thinker. He understands the U.S. Constitution as well as any student I have encountered. And there's one more thing about Noah that is one of his most important strengths. That is his kindness to those who disagree with his views. He is a gifted debater, but he is gracious and kind. Noah, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Mr. Warren. Thanks for letting me um, join your podcast today. All right. Noah, I'm going to dive right in. You know, this is just a conversation between the two of us, and we have listeners who don't know you like I've had the pleasure of getting to know you in class. And so I want you to take a few minutes to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know you. So just tell us your story, if you would. Sure. My name is Noah, as mentioned before. Um, I really like all things government. Um, I'm seeing this way. I'm on this podcast. <laughs> government has always been you know, a fascinating topic for me. I love exploring how just, you know, the nitty gritty, how it works, how it should work, and you know, how it's failing in multiple areas. I think I'm, you know, I'm a very strong Christian. I have, I believe that Jesus Christ is our only begotten son. Um, I think it's important to understand how government works so that we can preserve our faith in a lot of what we do. Um, as Christians, I think government should become a priority. And so I've loved learning more about government, especially in the name of helping us um, preserve our faith and our freedom to practice our faith. I also love computers. Computers are another love of mine. Um, I'm interested in going to cybersecurity for that reason. I started programming when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and a few years later when I found out I could break into other people's code or program, I was so excited. <laughs> and I kind of self-taught myself how to hack in a lot of different areas, and so that kind of sparked my love for cybersecurity. And so I would also kind of like to see in my future career how I could weave cybersecurity and computers and government all in one area as this is becoming you know, a really relevant area of study. Yeah, that pretty much that pretty much carries me in my you know, I wasn't planning to ask you this question, but I'm I'm working on, you know, we, we recently had some, let's just say, athletes who who expressed some disloyalty, public disloyalty or concerns about our country, our flag, our anthem and so on. And, and that, you know, that happens on a on a regular basis. How I and I know I'm probably catching you off guard with this question, but you mentioned it. How is a Christian? How, how do you reconcile being a Christian and being loyal to a country. How does that, how does, just give, give us just a couple of quick thoughts on that since you brought it up. Well, that's a really, really good question. And it's really difficult to, especially with our country legalizing abortion, which is clearly a huge moral issue. How can we stand behind the American flag when we have so many of these issues like this? Well, 
you know, I kind of think that at the very beginning, we had issues. We had slavery. That was a big moral issue at the time. But God still blessed our nation and used it for good. So it's important to know that God knows how to use even evil in this um, in certain circumstances for the good of our nation. And I think it's important That's to stand right. behind our nation because we we have to support it. And our country our country's always been about supporting religious freedom. And as Christians, that's extremely important to us. You just made a deep theological point, and we're gonna. We'll just leave that at that, and we might come back to that topic later in our discussion, but I want to get to this. This is an important issue. The world we live in today is changing rapidly, and you know I talk to a lot of students, and one of the things that I hear from them, among other things, among other ideological challenges, is just the rapid-fire way that you, your generation, and now even mine, encounter information and sometimes conservative or let's just call us liberty loving people like us can often feel like we've been left behind ideologically. You, Noah, are as solid as anyone I know in your principles. Where does this come from and what are those principles? Well, I think that my belief in government has to do with a lot of what's behind the American dream and you know, opportunity. But I, I also think that in our in our age, you know, we're often pegged as you know conservatives who hold to you know traditional morality, our old quote unquote old capitalism society, and our you know how our economic supply side economics works. But I almost think that in a lot of ways we are shifting to be the liberals of society, as everybody else is going the opposite direction. We are the ones that have to you know stand out and say no, this is wrong. No, this will not work. And so I think that, you know, as the years go by, we're continually becoming the radicals. We're continually becoming the people who are taking a stand and saying, no, this is not right. So Agreed. I think that I, I like how people, you know, pick it as, you know, you know, conservatives, quote unquote. But I think that as the days go by, we're becoming more and more the radicals. I think that's right. Now, I want you to help me with this. As a Christian young man, do you get the sense that a lot of, and I'm not just picking on young people because I think it's true of many generations, but do you get the sense that Christians just have, those with Christian values, let's even make the net broader, have not been engaged in government, and that's part of the problem? I think so. I I definitely think that that is a problem. I mean, I know that in our government, we have a few good Christian men that are attempting to take a stand and attempting to say, you know, like I said earlier, this is wrong. I do think, though, that Christians kind of have strayed away a little from government and Masons. This could be from the whole concept of the separation of church and state, which is you know, never really in our government. It's introduced in a letter by Thomas Jefferson. And I think that Christians have always been kind of scared to get into government, especially with a lot of the moral issues that you have to face and whatnot. But I think as Christians, it should be our duty and our responsibility to be in government so that we can take a stand and you know we can show the world the light of Christ. We can be the salt of the earth. And this is one way in this you know democratic republic that we have, that we can take a stand and we can, you know, uh, proclaim the truth of the gospel through the government. And, and just say, just one quick follow-up, if you had the opportunity to talk to parents of, say, middle school, high school, and even college and beyond young people, what advice would you give them about, I mean, something happened with you and your background, to that, and it might just be intrinsic in who you are, but it's either your family or friends or your own personal interest, but something drove you to really have an interest in these topics. And you have developed quite the knowledge base and quite the discernment, frankly, 
at a very young age to be able to take on these complex government, economics, liberty-related, civic duty-related, ideological topics that are challenging, that are difficult for a lot of much older adults. What advice would you give to parents who want to develop some of those? I don't think you can turn every student into a Noah McGill, but what would you tell parents to do? What, what kinds of things might they do? Well, I mean, you know, I'm no parent myself, and I'm far from becoming one, but um, one thing that my parents have you know, always done right, and I give them so much credit for this, I'm so thankful that they've done this, is uh, my dad you know, does litigation for a living. So our style of learning has always been one of questioning, always been one of seeking out the truth, always been answering and questioning, is this right? Is this the right thing to do on a moral, legislative, and you know, all you know, on that type of basis? We've always been picking apart issues and always having discussions about it. So I think it's important in, in family households to really question the things that are happening, even within the conservative media and within the you know, conservative politician group. You know, are they doing the right thing? I think it's important to put everything on the chopping block and examine it through the lens of the Bible and through the lens of how Jesus interpreted the Bible and really kind of put it under the microscope. And one of the things that, you know, I've always been, I've grown up doing is just questioning a lot of these things. And obviously mm-hmm. some people don't like to question it, kind of like to leave it as it is, but it's always kind of been a drive, I mean, to figure out, um, you know, the real truth, the real meaning behind everything. And, you know, some things, you know, you can't just have faith up into Christ that, you know, he knows the ultimate truth. But I think that it's really important to question everything that comes across you, and especially since information so, you know, fluently out there with no regard to accuracy. Um, it, it's so important to you know, figure out whether it's it's the truth. You know, that concept that you're talking about was shared with me. And I I mentioned this at uh, Circle Christian School's graduation this year, a guy named R.C. Sproul, who was my pastor for years. He actually, I had lunch with him and and we were talking about the fact that I wanted to do something more meaningful with the rest of my life. I had enjoyed a 28 year banking career and I I just thought, who better than R.C. Sproul to sit down with and kind of talk about such a transition? And when I did, we ended up on the topic of writing a book. And I, I, I said to him, how, because I had an interest in doing that, I could see some patterns in finance among Christian organizations, Christian schools, churches, and parachurch ministries. Mm-hmm. And I said, how do you do that? How do you write so many books? And I, I was expecting you know, a long answer. And he looks right at me and he was, he was done with the answer in about 10 seconds. He said, you challenge the assumptions. He said, that's what you did. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about an environment in your home where you were able to challenge the assumptions. And for parents who are listening, I would tell you that that has created in Noah, this ability to understand all sides of an of a complex argument. And that's not a skill commonly found in people in it's certainly not in our press today, but it's certainly not found in high school students of any capability in any setting. So I'm glad you explained that. And I, I think fostering that, that it can feel when you say challenge the assumptions of a subject, I mean, that, that sounds kind of threatening, doesn't it sometimes? And, and, and yet, you know, as Christians, we don't have to worry that our young people are going to embrace a flawed argument. We can share and we should share all of the information on as appropriate, all of the information on, on the topic. So I think there's some wisdom in, in what you just said there. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, like we're talking about government here, but I could totally be butchering this, but I think Paul mentioned in the New Testament, it's important for us to challenge our faith too. 
And so I always encourage yes. you know, my friends and people around my age to really examine their faith and really examine what we call the apologetics of our faith. And really, you know, the question, is our faith real? Is this something that, you know, we can base, you know, our truth and our principles on? And as a Christian, it's really important to do that because you're going to get, you're going to get challenged. I mean, I hear all these Christian students. That's right. I go to college and, you know, these, these college students basically have looked up on Google, what's the five hardest questions to ask a Christian? <laughs> well, you know. And, you know, most, most of the, most of my friends, and I would say even, you know, a lot of adults, you know, they, they look at question number one, they go, oh, goodness, I've never thought of that. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. We talk all the time. In fact, I was at a meeting yesterday with, with about 15 people and we were, we were talking about that issue and, and, you can, as leaders in Christian education, you can you can approach this several ways, but the purpose of this podcast, Relentless Truth, is is to explore and proclaim and discuss absolute truth. And in so doing, I believe that challenging the assumptions and probing underlying ideology is is key. I want to move on to a kind of a difficult question. I mean, I'll go ahead and call it unfair, but it's not unfair to Noah McGill because if you were elected president of the United States, if you were serving today, what would your administration do to solve just broadly challenges like immigration, inflation, and growing social justice divide in our country? And I'm going to, if we have time after a couple more questions, I'm going to ask you to just comment on a couple of, a handful of, of current events, but just generally, I'd love to know your your response to your president and what what would you do to solve some of these problems that we're not doing today? Well, I think that um, you know I, I you know, I'm definitely by no means a single issue voter, but I do like to kind of you know base any candidate on you know kind of what I would do and what his views kind of somewhere line the mind on uh, some of these single issue um, challenges, and I think some of the important ones to look at are things like immigration, inflation. Kind of the growing social justice atmosphere that you know divide that's happening in our country, and you know kind of look at their solutions to solving these you know individual problems. Um, I think my first thing to do as you know the president of the United States would be to um, really challenge abortion. Um, I, I know that we have a lot of our uh, conservative and Christian members of Congress, and they're working hard to you know have legislation to end or cap abortion, but I really think that should be the top focus on any voting Christian. This is the single biggest issue that we have of today. And so as president, that would be my first thing to attack. I agree. I, that, I um, agree. And I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. So that would be my first, that would be my first concern, you know, with our president. I think my second biggest one is immigration. I think that this is a widely underrated issue. I think that elections have been decided upon immigration before. I don't understand why politicians nowadays don't focus on it more. I think immigration should be handled, you know, there should be a very sequential process and very out detailed process for it. It shouldn't just be on a whim, like was talked about in the Senate and, you know, even the presidential branch at the moment. I think that we should really go back to the immigration of the Ellis Island days, where people were coming into our country for hope of pursuing the American dream, for hope of opportunity to get out of current oppression. People shouldn't be flooding into our country for, you know, social security and for governmental benefits. That's wrong. That's never what our country's been upon. I believe that the people that immigrated during the Ellis Island times really brought a big change to our country and really helped our industries explode and offer innovation to our industries and businesses. And I really like to see that again. I would like to see America as the shining beacon of hope and freedom where 
people come to us for opportunity and to seek freedom here. And so, you know, that's, that's another big issue that, you know, I have with our current politics and mm-hmm. um, governmental and foreign affairs. Talk about inflation. Just You mentioned inflation. Talk about that just for a minute. Is that a concern to you at your age? So I know that a lot of MMC moderates want to say, people to say that inflation isn't really a problem because of our current you know, capital and whatnot. I think that it is a reason to be concerned, although I, I don't think the world's ending, as some people claim online, but I think right. inflation is such a, a big issue. And part of that is the Fed keeps printing money and and we're in a very bad situation at the moment because the Fed should be raising over like interest rates. And they're not doing it because the minute they do, the stock market is going to tank. And if the stock market tanks, it's not going to look good on our current presidential administration. And so now both sides are playing politics. And that is not helpful for our current economy. What I, what I would do is I think that we need legislation. We need more legislation on how, I don't think more legislation, what a hypocrite I am. But we need more legislation on how inflation should be handled and how we print money. I don't like the idea that we can just print trillions of dollars, you know, on a whim with billions of dollars being printed each month. I don't, I don't think there, that should be true. I think there should be caps. There should be limits. There should be things set and triggers in place. And, you know, we just, we can't be just, you know, decide one, wake up one morning and decide that we're going to have a two trillion dollar stimulus package with most of it being foreign aid. That's awful, especially from a governmental perspective. You know what? For people, I've got it later on on that list of current current issues that I want you to respond to. But I want to jump to to just one item on that list since you mentioned them. The Federal Reserve, that is the party in the process that you were just alluding to. For those who are listening uh-huh. who don't follow this stuff closely like you do and like I do, talk about that for a second because they're able to, as I see it, basically unilaterally make these, uh, they call it quantitative easing decisions to do this bond buying program that you're referencing. You called it printing money, and that's exactly what it is. When you talk about safeguards, what I hear you saying is there needs to be some accountability there. How how do you see the Federal Reserve, just in short? I see the Federal Reserve, unfortunately, throughout the years, catering towards the political parties of the age. They always seem to want to help the the politicians and help, you know, basically what we call the big tech, especially with, you know, the first time in, I remember you telling me this a few months ago, for you know, the first time in history, they're, instead of buying government bonds with the money that they're printing, they're buying stock of these big corporate companies. They're buying bonds in the private well, sector. Yeah. Yep. Which is, you know, the first time that they're ever doing this. And, you know, me, the first time hearing about this, you know, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> is that even legal? Are they allowed to be, well, is the Fed allowed to be buying bonds from the private industry? And apparently it is, but I think that's a huge problem. Why and, we and we don't talk it? about it very much. The average person, I mean, you can go, you can go do a quick search or look at Wall Street Journal article archives and find plenty of information on this. It's not, it's not like nobody reports on it, but it's not widespread. It's not known on a widespread basis. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to I'm going to switch gears just quickly because I know we have lots of parents of young people who are your age and slightly older and slightly younger. And so since I get to spend so much time in the classroom with students each year, I sort of know the answer to this question, but I want the listener to hear it from you. What do you wish older generations knew about this generation, about your generation? You know, I think that, you know, I think that's a double-edged sword because our, our generation, you know, my younger generation, the older generation to 
be more open-minded. I think that's a big flag that a lot of people in my age wave a lot, a lot of their ideological points under, you know, kind of, you know, be more open to the ideas. But at the same point, I think it's the older generation has a lot of wisdom and maturity that if the younger ones kind of hypocritically were to open their minds that they could kind of refer back to. But then again, I, I think that if I had to boil it down to one thing, I think that that both generations have to understand that this new boom of technology, this new boom of information is presenting challenges that we've never seen before. And frankly, there's not really a precedent for how to handle problems, even behavioral problems. There's not a precedent for how to handle social problems. I mean, a lot of the stuff is brand new to our era, to our day. But I would, I would just encourage young and old people alike to go to the Bible and, you know, look through it at the lens of the morality that the Bible presents it as and do it through that instead of attempting to establish it on precedent already set through humans, but rather set it on precedent set by the Bible. All right. You're probably embarrassed at me continuing to say this, but I'm going to say it again. You're a smart guy and you're a deep thinker. You're a nuanced thinker. That didn't happen by accident. That didn't happen to a guy who's bombarded with information all the time, who isn't disciplined, who doesn't pause and and set aside some time for deeper thinking. How do you do that? Because I can fall in this trap at my age where I got my phone in my hand and somebody mentioned something in a conversation that I did this yesterday a couple of times in a meeting I attended that I mentioned earlier. And I I thought, oh, well, I'll look that up. I don't, I kind of recognize that name, but I'm not sure what theory they're talking about. Next thing you know, I'm halfway around the world and, and I've gone back 200 years and I see the quote they were referencing. And then another gnat flies by in the conversation and I look up something else. How, how do you just really practically, how do you structure your life? You're an academic, you're a great example academically, let's say it that way. You're a top performer. How, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you manage electronic devices and all the inputs and everything else? Well, I mean, you know, that's certainly a battle even for me. You know, and I'm a procrastinator by nature, so I like putting things off to the last minute. <laughs> um, you, you, hide, honestly, you hide that well. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know how, but I guess I do. I, I think that some of the things that have that have worked for me is, you know, I'd like to you know, set aside time, and I'll just say, look, I'm going to take it, you know, and I, and I know that my attention span is awful, so I can't say, you know, more than an hour, but I'll just put it in, you know, say, okay, I'm going to take this hour, and then I'm going to put it into studying or doing something that I enjoy to do or even schoolwork for that example. And, you know, I'll just, I'll do that. But then, you know, you need to take breaks and that's just how, you know, I function and operate. But I'm going to, I'm going to kind of reverse your question a little bit or ask kind of ask a different question. But, you know, I think that it's, it's important in the age of information to make sure that you're getting, you know, your information correctly. I know we talk about this in school all the time. I can't use Wikipedia, but, <laughs> right. um, you know, how, how do we find in, you know, and make sure information is, accurate, especially since, you know, like you said, we're being bombarded with information on, online and on the internet, and whether this is the research for projects school you're doing, whether this is research on political events that happen, whether this is research on biblical truth, you know, it's so difficult to find it. I think one of the best places for me to find it is ask people who have, you know, like, ask people like you who have, who are mature, who have studied this, who've taken the time to, and get their opinions on what are the best, you know, sources and places mm-hmm. to look at. So I think it's important to value it's important to value relationships in the effort to get information because there are so many opinions online, especially opinions relating to what information is valid. And I think it's important to utilize those relationships you have with parents and older friends and just ask them, well, what, what information kind of works for you? 
what have you found to be accurate and whatnot. And that's how I think that I can kind of filter all of the information I get through. Yep. Yep. That's a great answer. You know, Noah, you, you kind of know directionally the, the questions I like to ask you, ask young people and, I'm going to catch you off guard a little bit and do, we've got a little bit of time left and I, I want to do just a lightning round on, like I said, on some topics that are important right now. At least I see them as, as important. And I think our listener will want to know your insight on these topics and you've already addressed a couple of them. I want to jump to this one. So it feels to me like over the course of many years as an adult, the media has always been left-leaning. And yet I thought there was some balance. There were news sources. There still are some news sources that I rely on, but those are increasingly shrinking. And it feels like the media isn't just left-leaning anymore. They've actually crossed a line and jumped on the leftmost team. What, uh-huh. Comment on that, if you would. What What is that all about and why? Why does that happen? That's a really, really good question. And one that I thought you know, for so long, how come the national media and the attention for the media has basically picked the political party in almost every instance and other people who are another political party try to say their views are, you know, quote unquote canceled as, you know, we're kind of seeing now. And, and let I me think, ask you this, is it the fact that conservative views aren't just aren't as popular? Is it the fact that culture the Christian culture that you articulated so well through this conversation is not as popular and so in the battle for likes and clicks media shifts because of economic pressure? You know, I do think that too, um, especially if you look at everything through, you know, through a capitalistic lens, even in an increasingly socialism in society and government, everything kind of goes back to, well, how can I make the most amount of money? Um, and so maybe the top button issues is more left-leaning they like to cover. But Mr. Warren, I honestly think that, and this is kind of a serious talk, but a lot of these super billionaires, who, you know, Jeff Bezos, for instance, they're buying out all of these news media sources. They're buying shares and all of these news media. So it's almost like they're, they've gotten smarter than us in this way and they're, they've jumped ahead of us. And they're these people who have these left leaning views of buying the media and are turning them into what they want basically the press to release and whether this, whether this should happen right. or not. It's up for individual debate. But I really think that over the course of maybe 10, 20, 30 years, we've seen these big liberal, who are these super rich people who are, you know, big and liberal who are buying out these media outlets and news sources and basically catering them to what they want the news to hear. It's a very smart strategy. Reminds but, me, reminds me of Alexander, exactly reminds me of Alexander Hamilton and, and the New York Post on a grander scale. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you just a couple of other, just to get you to respond to a couple of other things that I, I think are important. I know, I think I know your answer, your response to this, but there's talk now about Supreme Court packing, not as much as there was a few months ago. Is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? And why? Honestly, I believe that it's a, it, well, you know, as a conservative, I think it's a very bad idea because they're going to pack it with liberals. But I think on the other side that, you know, basically we're going to get into, you know, eventually sooner or later, you know, we're going to have officials that we like that are going to be elected into office and well, frankly, they're going to do the same thing. <laughs> right. And, you know, we're going to have, you know, a super court that's over, I've heard numbers, over 100 numbers of liberal and conservatives. And every time we just try to talk to the other opponent, I don't think that has any benefit and any bearing over to both political sides. And frankly, as much as they're talking about it and they're making news about it, I don't think that'll happen. Because I think even members of the Democratic Party, one of Joe Mancha, probably not the same right, um, and some other senator from Arizona who's Democrat, and they usually vote in blocks. It's interesting that they're voting independently. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of see the 
overarching hypocrisy in this in saying that, well, this sounds like a great idea, guys. If we do this, we're going to have temporary power in the highest court on the planet. But, you know, four, eight, 12 years is going to come by and they're going to all of a sudden have the majority and they're going to be able to pass the court their way. And putting that aside for a minute, I almost think even though we don't have any legislation coming from our legislation branch on dealing with court packing and in the Constitution, there's not a set number of judges that it can be on this court. I think that due to how our judiciary system is structured and how precedent is valued more than anything in this court system is going to be enough for the Supreme Court members to come out and say, well, look, this is the precedent set for over 100 years. You cannot violate this precedent. And to do so, you have to have a constitutional amendment. There are several cases where they've done this in the past. I can't reference them off the top of my head. But I think that if it were to come down with it and they were to push packing the court and they were to have a successful amount of votes in a legislative branch, the judiciary branch doesn't want to lose their power. So they're going to come out and say, no, 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 you guys cannot do this. And so I think if it really comes down to it, that is what will happen. I've got just, that's an excellent answer. I agree with every word you just said. It is interesting how politics, the way we're set up in this country, gives us the impetus, gives us a long-term, a long view sometimes, even though it seems like we're having an election uh, every every moment. But but that long view should cause both parties, both ideologies to, to pause with respect to this issue. I want to ask you one yeah, more and, and, Go go right ahead. Well, and there was a thing in terms of, you know, long term issues. This is totally unrelated to your question earlier, but you know, I think that one of the ways that the Democratic Party and not only the Democratic Party but these universities who have these super liberal beliefs and you know, basically want to see the big brother enacted on every level and that they they've really outsmarted us in the long run because, you know, fifty years ago they they took over education system. They infiltrated the, the Department of Education. And um, that's why I'm scared to see in the next 30 or 20, 30, 40, 50 years of voting and election cycles, whether we're going to see these people who've gone through the public school system and who have been taught to accept what the system says and not to challenge it, not to challenge the truth that they've been you know, provided with. I could see a potentially basically life threatening to the Republican and the conservative movement. All of these young voters that are coming out and they're, they're not taught to challenge anything. And, you know, in, in the long run, they've, they've outsmarted us. They had this game plan in from, you know, day one. But this is one thing that I really wish the conservatives would step up and make a bigger issue. I agree. I, I want you to respond to one more thing since we're running out of time here. President Trump talked about this. You know, he talked about several things. He he really introduced um, not the concepts, but a focus on these concepts. And one was the deep state. What, what in the world is that? Talk to young people and, and explain it the way you do so well in our classes when we talk about some of these challenging issues. Is the deep state a problem? What is it? And should we care about it? Well, um, Mr. Warren, I first have a disclaimer. I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, so don't believe everything I say in regards to this. <laughs> but I do think the deep state exists as more of a power grab. I think what President Trump was referring to when he said the deep state was he basically was referencing these career politicians who have, are backed by these super billionaires who have hundreds of millions of dollars at their disposal, who have been in government forever, who have basically, I don't want to say rigged the elections to do their way, but have given the voters around their districts and areas enough incentive to keep them in office, to keep them, keep voting for them. I think that's really the deep state is these you know, career politicians who are all ganging together and are trying to push the political power in one way or the other. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily just a Democratic Party issue. I see the same thing on the Republican side. Agreed. I mean, we have our, you know, we have our Senate now Senate Minority Leader 
kind of, you know, probably previously in the past seemed to be playing, you know, political chess. I mean, he really, from my perspective, and I think a lot of Christian voters' perspective, didn't really care about a lot of our political beliefs. He was just more interested in playing the political game. And I think that's what a lot of what the deep state is made out of, is these people who are playing the political game who don't care about the political views of America, but who are more interested in pushing their own agendas in an effort to gain more money, power, and influence. I think that's exactly right. I think they're, they're also high-level bureaucrats who aren't necessarily politicians. I mean, they are politicians in, in a sense, but they too are part of that deep state. But the, the, those politicians who've been in power for many years and have used gerrymandering and all the other things to, yep. to advantage themselves that you just, you just referenced. Well, folks, Noah, first of all, thank you for, for being here. Folks, I want you to remember this name, Noah McGill. I think, and he, he probably will scoff at this, but I think you're going to hear from him again. Noah, thank you for being here. Here at Relentless Truth, we're going to continue to pursue absolute truth across several disciplines. We aren't really engaging in self-help, although our content is helpful, but we're exploring the big ideas that are so important to our understanding of how the world really works. Again, thank you, Noah. Thank you, Mr. Warren. I appreciate it. I look forward to being with you again next week. Our website is johnwarrenmedia.com. Please go there for more information and to contact us. Thank you again for being here. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.